Hello and welcome to Raising the Bar. This is the first in a series of podcasts from Popleston Allen. Across the series, we will host a wide array of guests from across the betting and gaming and hospitality industries. We will find out more about them, their career and business journeys, together with the secrets of their success, and we'll do a little bit of crystal ball gazing along the way. Welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast today. And in the first of our podcasts, I'll be talking to a legend of the nighttime industry, Peter Marks, a man with a glittering career, which allows me to call him one of the kings of the late night industry in the United Kingdom. Peter is now the chief executive of Recom in the UK, which was born out of the acquisition of over 40 nightclubs from the Deltic Group by Recom in December 2020. But enough from me for now about Peter, because I'm sure he will tell you all about him himself. So let's hear from the man himself about the late night sector his experiences over the pandemic and in launching Recom in the UK. And if we have some time, we'll also touch upon Peter featuring the TV series, The Undercover Boss. Hi, Peter. Hello, Jonathan. <laughs> Welcome to the first ever Raising the Bar podcast. And I guess the pressure's on us both to make sure it's not the first and the last one we do. So let's dive in. Uh, it's hardly been business as usual, has it, over the last 18 months, Peter? Well, actually, you could say um, it's about 21 months now, Jonathan, since uh, uh, we were all closed by the government for around about three weeks. Do you remember? It was three weeks to start with, and then we got an extension to to six weeks. Um, my goodness me, uh, how uh, things rolled out and changed uh, beyond any of our wildest dreams, or should I say nightmares. So, no, it has been the most challenging 18 months in my 21 months in my 40-year career. Uh, let's talk about the, the late night sector. How did you actually get into the late night sector in the first place? Which I mean, I've known you, I've, I've been doing licensing for 25 years and I think I've known you for 25 years. So how, how did you first get into the late night sector? Well, I think like a lot of people in hospitality, by accident, uh, I actually um, uh, tried to get a job in the recession of 1981, uh, I'd left university and uh, I was um, out there looking at the usual suspects of things like Marks and Spencer. Uh, and frankly, uh, we were running out of time in what was then a, a, a bad recession. And so I got a job as a trainee manager in a nightclub in Wakefield in a club uh, called Casanovas, which sounds extremely old fashioned and corny. Um, but it was such a lucky break. Now, I only went there because it had the term manager in the title. But of course, like any trainee manager back then, it meant you do everything for half the uh, wages of most of the people that are hourly paid. Uh, but where I got lucky uh, was that that club in Wakefield ended up being one of the most glittering and successful uh, clubs in the country. And indeed, uh, it expanded, it doubled in size with a business called Rooftop Gardens at the back of it. And uh, back in 1984, when I was 24, uh, I was running this uh, business that was taking £75,000 a week and uh, was just a phenomenal success. So uh, I guess, you know, uh, luck uh, and accident is how I got into the late night sector. Mm. Is, it, is it still open, that nightclub, Peter? Is it still open? Uh, well, um, the back half is something else, and the front half is uh, owned by a dear old friend of ours, Bill Muirhead. And uh, yes, it's still uh, it's still a nightclub. I bet Bill will thank us for that mention on the on the podcast. Yes, I I, I remember the club well. So, what's a normal day look like for you at the helm of Recon, Peter? 
There is no such thing as a normal day. And I must actually say that if I've got one lucky thing that I can say about my career, I've honestly never had a boring day ever. And um, uh, and now is, uh, uh, is even more the case. Uh, I have uh, meetings on a Monday, a typical Monday with all my direct reports. Uh, but uh, reality is that um, you then spend so much of your time fighting, uh, dealing with inbound issues, uh, dealing with uh, the PR and the communications of the company and looking at the strategy. And of course, nowadays, I spend a lot of time uh, in team meetings uh, with um, our investors and colleagues in uh, Denmark uh, and also understanding more about their business. So it's it's fast, it's furious, it's fun. Uh, no two days are the same. And I, I feel very lucky. And I guess you've had to spend some time over in Scandinavia, have you, I assume? Uh, yes, although anybody that's travelled uh, will recognise that it's not that easy to do. But uh, I've actually only been over there once so far. I went over there for three or four days, um, and then I went on another uh, trip uh, uh, to look at a potential acquisition in another country. Uh, but uh, they're very, very good. They're very professional. Uh, they've done a great job uh, building Recon from really nowhere in 2008. Uh, and the whole of Recon now in four countries uh, throughout Northern Europe is 200 businesses and fast growing. And since you started at Casanova and Rooftop Gardens, t- tell us a bit about how uh, how you started your career there. What has changed in the industry since you, since you started at, uh, in Wakefield all those years ago? Ah, well, this is right on your toes as a licensing lawyer, because, of course, the biggest thing of all is the Licensing Act 2003 that uh, came into being actually more like 2005, but was a mission creep from around about 1998. And going back to 1981, when I started, uh, basically, the only things that opened post 11 o'clock had a special hour certificate, an entertainment license with all the conditions and that comes with it and the fire exits and the security and the air changes and, and the building regs that were far in excess of any any other uh, uh, in the uh, late night hospitality. Uh, but you had a monopoly uh, and that meant that you could make very good money quite easily and people will pour out the pubs. Uh, probably about half past 10 to join the enormous queues so they could definitely get in. And you'd have a mix of people uh, from 18 to 50. There were many customers back then that were 50, 60 years old. They were often the fathers or the uncles or, uh, of the people that were in there. And they, they'd sort of keep an eye on the young people that having a great time. And they go up and say, oh, I've seen what you were doing. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell your dad or something like that. So uh, they were phenomenally easy days when you look back on it. But of course, when you're in it, you don't realise it. Uh, and um, gradually, uh, there was a change in around about 1997 where you didn't need to prove need, which meant it was far easier for people to get licences. And then, of course, between 98 and 2005, and then from 2005 onwards, you saw a gradual relaxation when everybody came into the market. And what that did was it basically took certainly all the all the over 30s out of the market because they were quite happy to stay in bars and have something that was a little uh actually lower energy um and more um, cocktails and conversation than uh, uh you know this sort of lively uh, atmosphere and noise and dancing and lights and, and everything that we do and so 
in, in many respects, that is a regret because I think that it meant that nightclubs became more price sensitive. There were more younger people in them. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, we all also have to accept that uh, uh, when people start uh, going out and clubbing and learning their uh, their boundaries and their limits, that uh, uh, that comes with um, you know sort of problems that we have to sweep up as a late night industry. And without that balance of over 25s, it's a little bit harder. And of course, these pubs never didn't have to put their their small dance floors in play anymore. Do you remember the little studs you'd find on the floor in some of these some of these bars, Peter, to get a specialised certificate? We're we're harking back to the old days now, aren't we? With a with a DJ on and a wee bit of pizza that they do, but they, they don't have to do that anymore, of course. Oh, the the um, uh, some of the kitchens that were put in. Let me tell you, if you ever went behind the scenes in some of these uh, establishments, of course, we had to in the nightclubs have proper kitchens and proper restaurant areas. So all of that faded, and rightly so, really, let's be honest, because uh, this was almost you know, a throwback to the theatre clubs that then became nightclubs, or, or, or these ballrooms that became nightclubs. So the theatre clubs and the ballrooms had kitchen facilities. And of course, I don't know whether you realise this, but certainly if you wanted a town centre site back in sort of the 80s, the perfect site was often the old cinema, because the cinema had moved to an out-of-town, uh, nice new uh, area with its own car park and shared uh, space. And um, there was a D2 planning requirement for a nightclub that happened to be the same as theatres and cinemas. So places of places of assembly, I think they were called, Peter. Places of assembly. There you go. Of course, that did leave us also with having to sort the asbestos out. <laughs> That's right, yes. I remember it well. So yeah. we, we can't have a podcast i'm afraid peter i'm sorry to, to, to mention the word without mentioning the the, the horrible c word covid uh, and it's yeah. clearly impacted the entire hospitality industry but so can you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with covid at recon yeah well to keep it uh fairly brief um we accepted the fact that uh we weren't going to get back first uh and we also knew some of that was messaging to be honest uh, so uh, when everybody closed in March, you shrugged your shoulders, you planned, you did a cash flow through for uh, six months, which we thought was an extraordinarily uh, a secure place to make sure that we were okay uh, with and make sure we weren't going to run out of cash uh, for that length of time. And in the summer of uh, 2020, people started opening uh, and we were hoping to get the go ahead in August. It didn't come in September. Oh, hang on. It's still not coming. The schools are back. And that uh, we were then in August and September as the late night economy, not just recon. Uh, we were speaking with government to the ministers in Bayes, uh, Paul Scully in particular. They were very supportive of us. And I felt that we were going to get a support package if we weren't able to open uh, until November. Uh, of course, when the schools went back, the rates went through the roof. Everybody ended up having restrictions and closing. And because everybody, in effect, came off the pitch and came to sit on the subs bench with us, there was not a chance. Uh, and the real issue I have, and we've been doing some uh, work on this, is that if you are running a large uh, nightclub company with large nightclubs, high rates, high leases, costs, and you were a multiple operator, then you were actually at the very bottom of the pile of help 
And if you count help as a percentage of turnover, your normal annual turnover, uh, we were way behind anything else, which put us under immense strain. And now, if I can may spend you know, a couple of minutes on recon in particular, uh, we had three high net worth investors uh, uh, with us. They were wonderful people. Um, and uh, one of them, unfortunately, was very ill in hospital. So when it was clear that the bank were um, losing um, uh, sort of their faith in our discussions with government, uh, they wanted our shareholders to put more money in. Uh, and don't forget that was money behind the bank. Our bank debt wasn't high, actually, but also behind the potential uh, tidal wave of uh, rent debt. Uh, and it was clear that we were in trouble and uh, not helped by the fact that our largest investor, a smashing guy called Paul Evans, was in hospital very ill. Paul subsequently died this March and actually never came out of hospital. But um, uh, that meant that the other two shareholders were a little bit unsure as to what to do. Uh, we had to run a process through BDO uh, to uh, look at um, a, a prepack. Um, uh, to, in effect, rid ourselves of, of the debt. Uh, and, uh, of course, that meant that the uh, previous investors could also make a bid for us. And that was only right and proper. But it was a proper process. And um, we ended up with four good bids for the company. Um, but eventually, the people that won through uh, were Recon. Uh, Recon, though, have proved uh, to be a, a fabulous fit for us. Uh, uh, both culturally, uh, because they really are good guys. And uh, I'd like to think that anybody who knows me uh, would say that I am a people person and that I've always put people at the heart of any decisions that we make. Doesn't mean to say we don't make hard decisions, but you're in hospitality and hospitality is about people. Um, uh, uh, these guys are exactly the same. Uh, and uh, and furthermore, going around with um, uh, recons, uh, uh, main investors, well, actually, they're operators like I am. And uh, we had the most amazing discussions because we were talking about, uh, um, you know, flows within the clubs and changing the shape of booths and um, looking at stripping other things out and stripping back carpet that we still got some of, unbelievably. And, um, and all of those things. And you realise how refreshing that was because most of my life when I've gone and raised money uh, from um, private equity or from uh, the market, uh, what they usually do is try and sust you out over about 30 minutes. They've worked out then uh, that you know what you're talking about as an operator. And then they spend the next two hours speaking to the finance people uh, about balance sheets and appreciation policies and amortization and write-offs and, uh, and, uh, and leases and all of those sort of things because they totally get it. Whereas I'm talking here to an audience of operators who are far more interested in the, the, stock, the soft stuff that makes the business work. So it was incredible. And, and here we are now. Uh, we are in month 11 of our tenure and uh, everything that they promised uh, has come to the, come to the fore. Uh, and the hospitality industry in general, Peter, what state is, and in particular the late night industry within it, what state is it in at the moment? And again, I'm sorry to ask you about this, but COVID passports, I mean, you have experience of these now in Scotland and Wales. I'm Without putting words in your mouth, I don't imagine it's a particularly positive experience, is it? How, how are they going and, and how is okay. the nighttime industry or the health of it at the moment? So a lot of people haven't made it through to this period. A lot of clubs and late night bars 
have, have closed. They may reopen again. Uh, but for those of us that are, have been in good shape, it's been phenomenally good. Uh, since July the 19th, uh, our trade has been incredible. It's been like a big reset, uh, the like of which I've never seen in, in 40 years. Uh, there's two things that have done that. Um, first of all, volume. But that's only a bit. Volumes are up about 10%. The biggest thing of all is spend per head. And now a lot of people won't measure spend per head because they don't measure admissions. So people listening to this uh, in, in hospitality, uh, the majority will not ever count people in and, uh, because they won't need to and it's not part of their um, their KPIs. But we do. So we know what our spend per head was and it's gone from about £15 to about £19, which is incredible. And uh, why that is, we can only guess uh, because it isn't the science, it's art. Uh, but it would look like uh, people are just coming in early, having had a poor experience in pubs, not what pubs are about pre-July the 19th. You remember those days when people were sat in tables of six and had to be served and put a mask, mask on to go, well, you know, once you are 18 or 19, you've never been uh, legally out to a licensed premises before. You're thinking, is this a pub? Look at these clubs. This is much better. And so it came earlier. And what had happened is that we weren't getting people in until half past 11 midnight prior to COVID. And they're now coming in in good numbers uh, between sort of 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock on a Friday and Saturday. So it's been transformational. And um, I think it's fair to say that in the short term, our profits have doubled. I mean, it's incredible, doubled. But we don't expect it to uh, last forever. It's been a unique year when we've basically got the equivalent of two years worth of 18 year olds coming to the market, two years of freshers. Um, uh, so you know that, that's been good. Now let's talk about passports. I cannot tell you how annoyed I am with the government's pathetic stance on passports, which is no more than virtue signaling. In fact, I go as far as to say it's a publicity stunt because it's irrelevant. First of all, since July the 19th, up to date, there's been no increase in the 20 to 29 cohort in infections or any other thing. So, you know, this is it's about messaging. They're all um, sort of um, rubbing their hands uh, and saying, look, other countries uh, have asked this of their nightclubs. We're going to be doing the same. But what difference is it going to make? Uh, the fact is they're trying to get 5 million people who haven't had a vaccine to have a vaccine and they somehow bizarrely using nightclubs as part of that messaging. Now, if you're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, we were all there once, then actually uh, you're probably saying, I'm not having this government telling me what to do uh, and I'm not going to have a vaccine. Uh, and so I'm not going to go to the nightclub. I'm going to the pub. I'm going to a restaurant. I don't need to go to a nightclub. So what has actually happened is of course it's not in in England yet, um, and I have to say I don't believe that Plan B is wanting to be placed upon us by uh, the English politicians. And I use those words carefully because I think they want to sort of cock a snoop at their uh, Welsh and Scottish counterparts to say, "There you go, you just didn't need to do it." But you're right to say I've got clubs in Scotland, I've got clubs in Wales. So, if I may, in Wales, it was uh, interesting the first weekend. I think it's fair to say that most people in the queue didn't know what an NHS um, app was, even though loads of them had actually had the vaccination. So, they were stood in the queue and we had to cut the queue in half. We'd get to the back half of the queue and say, look, <laughs> download the NHS app now and try and upload your passports. So, so, 
actually, it sort of went all right. In Scotland, however, it's really hit businesses much harder. And whilst we've only got a couple, so I have to rely on my uh, other friendly Scottish operators, a lot of them have been absolutely devastated, down 20, 30, 40%. And uh, further to that, there's this bizarre thing, uh, and uh, there's a a business I know called Tiger Lily in Edinburgh, run by friends of mine at Montpellier. They're really good guys, very smart operators. They've got, you know, got a hotel and they've got a mixture of businesses. But they've just basically put furniture on the dance floor so they no longer have to um, uh, put up with this uh, Nicola Sturgeon-inspired charade, this public messaging, this publicity stunt. So I'm sorry to sort of be animated on it, Jonathan. I think you know me long enough to know that I'm never one to sit on the fence. Uh, But, you know, it's it's a joke. Mm -hmm. Um. The, the lobbying that the late night industry's done uh, of government to get assistance support uh, how how do you think uh, how do you think that went did, did, has the lobbying had some effect uh, as you said earlier that you, you feel as if the very much the late night industry has been at the back of the queue in terms of assistance and support H- how has the lobbying helped has it helped peter i think it's made us feel that we've been listened to and i genuinely think think having got close to government and ministers and their departments, they do mean well. And I didn't think that was the case a year ago. So I applaud them on that. But as one guy said to me once, and this was a private equity individual who rescued Monarch Airlines and rescued British Steel, both of which have been in long talks with the government beforehand, he said to me, Peter, the government will always open the door to you, they will listen to you, but they won't give you anything, they won't do anything, they will just uh, time you out. And he said that to me before it was apparent that that was the case. Um, And I have to say that for all of the uh, talks that we had, not just with the Bayes Department, but with, with the Treasury, where we gave the Treasury a very simple and fair way of supporting those in hospitality in a in a proper manner, we still got nothing. Uh, I think though, um, it's certainly not a broken relationship. And I, I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be a politician. Uh, but I do think that we've at least got the channels now to carry on having a debate to rebuild uh, the sector and to rebuild our balance sheets and to pay down our debts. Uh, so, you know, I would say, it, on balance, made us feel better, but we didn't really particularly get anything. So, on a lighter note, Peter, tell me, well, tell me what it what was it like to appear on on the undercover boss? Wow, do you that, know that so, wig, that wig. Oh, that that wig. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, I was in two minds to do it, but I'd come to a company in the former Luminar that had been struggling for two or three years. It had too much debt, and it slowly was being choked to death uh, by that debt and by the banks that then uh, took over effectively. And I wanted to say to the employees, look, I'm different. This is a different company. And that was what made me decide, you know what, I'm going to do this because that's the message. Am I really going to learn loads going around my clubs? Honestly, probably not. And uh, it was, um, yeah, so, so that's why I did it. 
But then I did actually learn a couple of things. Uh, and the first thing is, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, look, that Wednesday's rubbish, let's shut it. Uh, it's no good, it's no good. But actually, then you go back and you do the uh, back to the shop floor thing and you realise that the guy who's sort of mopping behind the bars and doing the cellar work and he's relying on an hourly paid job and you suddenly take an eight hours and he can't afford to uh, stay with your company or he has to go and get another job. So you, you forget the basics. Um, and the other thing that you also forget is, you know, just how much of an intense job it is for the management and for the uh, door supervisors uh, to sort of thin out the you know the troublemakers and and uh, and let the good people in and re rely on the fact that 99% are great but 1% are damn hard work you do forget that but uh, you know it was great fun um, I, I'll tell you something else I've never told anyone else though right this is an exclusive for you they actually basically put together the story before you go on they do like a cartoon mood board and then it's the job of the producer and the director to basically steer you into that mood boot, into that story. You're going to go to this cleaner, you're going to find this, and you're going to help this, et cetera, et cetera. And if you say the wrong thing when they're saying, what was that like? They almost say, just tell me again, but this time when you say that Linda was doing a good job or something like that. So you realise that actually you're a bit more of a puppet than you'd like. But, you know, they were a fantastic team. Uh, the the, uh, the video uh, and um, sound crew. And I think that they realised that as an ex-operator, because I started as an operator and I'd done all the rubbish job, I was game for anything and I wasn't, you know, out of my depth on anything. And I think they were actually quite surprised by that. I think they thought, oh, this chief executive, you know, he's probably come up, he's probably a lawyer or an accountant and he's just come in at the top and he hasn't a clue on what it's like to do all those uh, those horrible jobs and the fact is you know what i'm pretty comfortable doing them <laughs> you didn't get the chance to be a red coat which one undercover boss of course didn't, didn't oh, they? <laughs> mr tony marshall no thank goodness you wouldn't want to see me sing or dance <laughs> <laughs> so away from the cold face when you're running uh, recon what do you what do you do in your, fair, in your spare time to relax peter i've two hobbies uh cycling uh, and wine and not at the same time so i love to do vineyard tours uh, and understand and, uh, uh, more about that. And of course, in the job that I got, that's quite easy. Uh, yeah, I can usually pull a few strings and if I'm going to France to see a friend, uh, then I'll be able to find a vineyard nearby and tap up somebody and say, right, do you know this guy? <laughs> so, and then I get some uh, a good look around. And, and so I, I love wine and the more I know about wine, the more I know I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then cycling is, uh, it, I find it the best therapy going. It's not only keeping me fit, but it actually takes my mind off of, uh, of work and of, of everything. And, and, uh, and when we were in the depths of the difficulties last November, when we were effectively slowly going bust and trying to raise money uh, to come out the other side, I actually cycled every day at lunchtime. I used to do the meetings in the morning, get on the bike, do 15, 16 miles, get off the bike and carry on. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. And um, if you get time to read a book, what's the last book you you read, Peter? And and what's the best book that you've read? Uh, the last book, well, the latest book I'm reading actually is um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the latest by David Attenborough, um, and uh, I think uh, you know it was obviously something to do with saving the planet, and it's actually a fascinating read, um, uh, um, and you know it's uh, it's an interesting time that we find ourselves in, and. Uh, uh, despite the industry I'm in, I, you know, I want to make sure that we leave our planet to, uh, you know, in, in, you know, to my granddaughter and great grandson or whatever it is, in the, 
as good a nick as possible. So that's an interesting uh, uh, thing for me to read. Um, but my favourite book is a book by my favourite author. And my favourite author is Bill Bryson. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's got a real mixed bag of books out there. Uh, but uh, he does a, a, a brief, no, a short history of everything which is a little bit of a spin on a brief history of time, but it's a short history of any everything. And it's the most wonderfully written book, about 500 pages long, uh, but basically talks about the history of the universe um, and, uh, you know, biology and civilizations. And I remember uh, physics and chemistry, but in a way that the common man could actually understand it. It's wonderful. Uh, so, you know, that um, uh, my favorite little story from that is that I was asked to a dinner party once and uh, the host said, look, I'm going to sit you next to this very quiet man because I know you're a chatty sort of guy. And um, he's a quantum physicist uh, from Oxford University. Uh, but my wife knows his wife very well. And that's why they're sort of here at the party. So I sat next to this guy, Ray, his name was. Um, and he, I said, well, what do you do? Uh, and he said, well, I, I'm a physicist. I said, well, what branch? He said, quantum. Well, I swear to you, just by luck, that afternoon I'd read the chapter on quantum physics and was able to uh, hold my own on a quantum physics discussion, um, amazingly, and string theory to boot. Uh, and uh, he was so pleased. <laughs> But well, the next day, I've forgotten it all. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Well, time's against us. So just one final question for you. If you were to give some advice to somebody just going into the, to, to the hospitality industry, what, what one bit of advice would you give to them, Peter? Uh, make sure you're going into uh, the strand of hospitality that interests you most, because this is um, something that you have to live and breathe. And secondly, never forget it's about the people. Whatever it is, it's always about the people. So that's two things, but two very important things. One wasn't enough. Thanks, Peter. Uh, it's been lovely to have you on our, our first podcast. And uh, I think and I hope that we've just about done enough to make sure we uh, we will record a, a volume two of this, uh, Peter. So thanks very much. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed our first podcast and uh, we'll look forward to uh, welcoming you back soon. Uh, thank you. And thank you very much, Peter Marks. Delighted. Thanks. <laughs>